I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. C-13 Originals. This episode, it's Sayonara Bread, for now. Hello again, Donna. I'm Liliana Lick, and this is Once Upon a Time at Bennington College. Okay, so here's where we're picking up the action. Donna's first non-resident term, non-resident term 1982 to 1983, has come to an end, and she's back at Bennington. During NRT, she'd moved into an apartment near Capitol Hill with Paul McGloin, upperclassman and classic student. News she either downplayed, as she did with Jonathan Leatham, telling Jonathan in an oh-by-the-way parenthetical, or hid, as she did with her kinda, sorta, almost, not quite Ole Miss boyfriend Ben Herring, aka, or so we think, Lord Jim telling Ben slash Lord Jim she was staying in D.C. with, quote, an aunt, unquote. She'd snuck away from Paul one night to drink and dance with Ben. Though Ben had spent the fall not returning her calls or letters, she still hadn't given up hope on the two of them as a couple, as seems clear from her communications to Jonathan. But something about this encounter must convince her to let it go, except the fact that they aren't meant to be. And as we know from Ben, They won't see each other again for a year and a half. The breakup with Jonathan, the one we knew was coming thanks to that line in his nonfiction piece, Zelig of Notoriety, quote, I was briefly true friends with Donna, occurs only a few weeks later, back at school, early on in the new semester. And breakup is, I believe, the correct term here. Because even if their relationship is a friendship, it's really, in my view, a romance. A frustrated romance, maybe, or a thwarted romance, or even a non-romance, i.e. a romance that never gets off the ground or materializes, but still, a romance. Its contours and rhythms, possibilities and promises, are amatory rather than amicable. A quick review of Donna and Jonathan's history. The first week of school, Donna meets Jonathan and his roommate, Mark Norris. Mark is the more flashily handsome, and Donna falls for him though she swiftly recovers her equilibrium. She and Jonathan, along with Reggie Shepard, a poet from the Bronx, and Caitlin McCaffrey, a photographer from San Francisco, then form a tight little friend quartet. Only not just friends, because Caitlin, it turns out, is actually Jonathan's girlfriend for much of the term, as we will learn later in this episode. Around Thanksgiving, Donna goes on a date with Brett, 
and is already seeing Paul McGloin. So hers and Jonathan's timing is off. When one is unattached, the other isn't, and vice versa. But Donna and Jonathan are engaged in an unspoken flirtation would explain the tone of those NRT letters, which is more than affectionate, is provocative. The SWAK sealed with a kiss on the back of the envelope of the Valentine's Day letter. The instructions at the end of an earlier letter telling Jonathan to kiss a certain spot on the page because she'd already kissed it, etc. I should add, the attraction between Donna and Jonathan, if indeed attraction is what it is, isn't one-sided. Brett senses vibrations coming off Jonathan. Now, Donna, men have been known to fall under her spell and become, and I, I think Jonathan was one of those, and I know other men who did. At the end of episode six, I conclude that it's money that drives the wedge between Donna and Jonathan, both of whom are on financial aid. And I do believe it drives a wedge. Jonathan has been at Bennington only a few months, and he's already worked himself up into a lather of class rage. I mean, I can't underline enough what, you know, a strange kind of bubble I grew up inside. My parents' bohemianism and left-wing, kind of willful, eccentric, dissident atmosphere. I just didn't understand what economic privilege consisted of. I've written about it over and over again. As I said, all the paradoxical ways in which I became immediately drunk upon and poisoned by the atmosphere of Bennington, you know, the things that I wanted so badly that were both totally suddenly mine and demonstrably not for me. (laughs) I suddenly understood that a lot of people sort of purchased their art careers. I suddenly, I became enraged. Donna seems to have the opposite reaction. Exposure to Bennington provoking in her class longing. Donna likes, or appears to like, how wicked and rich Bennington is. Her impulse not to renounce this world, but to join it. To master its rules and customs so thoroughly that she's mistaken for a native. Jonathan says as much in his nonfiction piece, Zelig of Notoriety. In friendship, Donna had a rarefied talent for secrecy and fantasy, exactly as her books suggest. I relished sharing Donna's trance-like aura until the star of our friendship suddenly fell, and then I became paranoid. So positive Donna was dangerous to me that I discounted my own obnoxious tantrums. I missed how Donna's airs of belonging were on-the-spot inventions, born as much of need as my own airs of not belonging. So Donna and Jonathan find themselves on opposing sides of the class war. A problem, but not, I'm betting, an insurmountable one. What finally breaks their bond, I suspect, is Jonathan's new girlfriend, Maddie Horseman, class of 85. Jonathan. My second semester girlfriend, Maddie Horseman, was a painter, and she was in a rock band on campus. And, you know, she just seemed famous to me. Everyone felt like, oh, Maddie, you know. I remember she took up so much wonderful space and, and was so dynamic and so funny and I remember when I, you know, got her attention because I was a year behind her, that it was like, wow, I'm like Maddie Horseman's arm candy. <laughs> For Sydney Cooper, class of 88, an artist from a working class section of northern San Diego County, Maddie embodies the spirit of Bennington itself. 
when I arrived at Bennington, I was feeling really unsure having driven through, you know, New England world. It was like, what the hell am I doing here? But when I saw Maddie Horseman was the first person I saw at Bennington on a bike, singing at the top of her lungs, wearing some crazy outfit. And I thought, this is the place for me. Jonathan and Maddie have a past, even if Maddie isn't aware of it. Again, Jonathan. She had been high school kind of frenemies with one of my high school girlfriends, Maureen. And Maureen had said, oh, you know, look out, Maddie's at Bennington. And I bet she's like tearing that place down. So it wasn't only that she was famous at Bennington, but I was, there was like a a double association for me of like Maddie was a kind of a stellar figure. Jonathan and Maddie are still teenagers, just kids. But this isn't a kiddie romance. To Jonathan, Maddie is the real deal, an artist and inspired. And her mixture of impudence and obduracy represents for him, I think, an ideal of creative freedom. You can hear the reverence in his voice when he speaks of her and to her. In a letter dated August 9th, 1984, he writes, quote, Maddie, I have admired you from afar, been influenced by you, wanted to change you, wanted you to change me. I have loved you and been in love with you. Already, I don't know what I would do or think or do without you. See what I mean? Not a kitty romance. Here's Maddie on how she stole Jonathan, unwittingly, from Caitlin McCaffrey, and how Jonathan stole her, wittingly, from his friend, Rich Kronfeld. Jonathan was like leaving me these cute notes. And then I was bitching one night. He was sitting on my bed and I was complaining to Jonathan how Rich kind of seemed like, you know, distant. And he's like, you shouldn't like him. You should like me instead. I was like, okay. But the girl he was dating lived down the hall. So he would be brushing his teeth in the communal bathroom next to her. He said it was awkward. I was just oblivious. The girl down the hall is obviously Caitlin McCaffrey. It's awkward with Caitlin, but it's something more than that with Donna. Before I get to that, though, this. The previous term, Donna had made for Jonathan a proposed cast list for a film version of the Bible. For the part of Job, she selected Jonathan. For St. Paul, Reggie Shepard. For the Roman Horde, Rick Smith and Lisa Fader. I laughed the hardest at this one, listeners. For the children of Israel, the population of North Bennington. For the three wise men, the three classics boys, Paul McGloin, Matt Jacobson, and Todd O'Neill. For God, Claude Fredericks, the classics teacher, and the basis for the secret histories, Julian Morrow, naturally. And for Pontius Pilate, Maddie Horseman. Pontius Pilate, you might remember from Sunday school or Hebrew school, is the Roman prefect of Judea, the scumbag who ordered Jesus' crucifixion. It's almost as if Donna sensed a betrayal was coming. Not that Jonathan is betraying Donna. Maddie on Donna's reaction to her and Jonathan pairing up. She's always been nice to me about Jonathan. She never confronted me and said, hey, take my boyfriend. Because as far as I knew, I took Jonathan for Caitlin. But somehow my bicycle got thrown into the bottom of the lake. And I really thought it was Reggie. Reggie, as in Reginald Shepard, of course. That's who she believes is performing this act of misbegotten chivalry. And I thought it was Reggie doing it for Donna because she was upset about Jonathan. 
This isn't to say that Donna is ever catty or cruel to Maddie. Donna's manners, it appears, are too good for that. And I mean manners in the profoundest sense. Manners is a synonym for code of honor. And she conducts herself, according to Maddie, with a kind of wounded grace. I love Donna. She has been nothing but great to me. Just on her side. That's it. Even though she recognized at some point that me and Jonathan were an item, she was never mean to me. But here's the thing. At that age, it only takes one or two even making out sessions to become meaningful. You don't even have to go all the way. You have to be at that age, finally have someone to talk to who knows Faulkner, whatever, you know? Maddie's observation here is canny. It would, I'd imagine, be thrilling for Donna to connect with a guy sexually. How many times more thrilling, though, would it be for Donna to connect with a guy intellectually? A guy who, like her, has read everything, even if it's a different everything than her everything, and who wants to write novels, too. In her NRT letter to Jonathan, there's news exchanged and gossip, but also book recommendations and literary allusions, wide-ranging ones. Faulkner's name is tossed around, yes. So is Plato's, Thurber's, Woodhouse's, Dunleavy's. And how great if the sexual connection and the intellectual connection could be found in a single person. She'd come so close to finding that in Ben Herring, only he'd backed away, gone off with another girl. And now the same thing seems to be happening with Jonathan. So Donna is, either by nature or circumstance, I suspect both, an emotionally secretive person and very guarded. Only she isn't with Ben or Jonathan. I asked Ben why he thinks that is. We met very naturally. And I mean, I think it was so new that she didn't have time to reflect and become guarded. She had not arrived at the point where she was guarded on stuff. She was, wasn't guarded because she wasn't yet guarded. And she still isn't yet guarded with Jonathan. The NRT letters are like a window thrown open on her soul. Yeah, yeah, oh, barf. I know, it's a gross turn of phrase but it's apt in this case. Here's a passage that I didn't read to you in episode six, the epistolary novel episode. It's from Donna's February 7th letter. She tells Jonathan how tired she is of being well-behaved, how badly she wants to be around those who know her for the, quote, randy, rummy creature she truly is. Then she adds, quote, your letters make me miss you so, dot, dot, dot. See what I'm saying about the open window? And then Maddie comes along and the window slams shut. Thank goodness there's the consolation of Bennington itself. Maddie is equally canny on what the school means to those who find their way to it. We were a vicious crowd of misfits that we each had our own bone to pick. But we had never met people on our level before. Maddie is saying, in short, that people who don't fit in anywhere fit in at Bennington. People like her, like Jonathan, like Brett, like Briggs, like Donna. Maddie, though, is an arty kid from New York City. So is Jonathan. And Brett and Briggs are arty kids from L.A. They're alienated, sure. But still, they're in sophisticated, worldly-wise cities, are part of sophisticated, worldly-wise scenes. Their alienation doesn't compare to the alienation Donna must have felt coming from a small town in deepest South. Again, Maddie, 
I think Donna was seething with anger before she ever got to Bennington. She comes from Mississippi. How misunderstood could you possibly be? Violently alone is how I'd characterize Donna's situation in Grenada and at Kirk Academy. She'd have found respite the year before at Ole Miss with Ben and the Willie Morris crowd. But the Willie Morris crowd is a subculture at Ole Miss. It's the dominant culture at Bennington. The relief she must have felt when she transferred, met someone like Jonathan, probably can't be overstated, probably can't even be imagined. And then Jonathan is, or so she feels, or rather, so I imagine she feels, taken away. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Sophia Franklin, and I have a little secret to let you in on. I know you've all wanted more of me, so I'm introducing you to my brand new mini series that's out now. More of me, more of you, more of us every Monday. Bringing back all the OG feels that initially brought us together. Listen and follow Sophia with an F on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. If Ben and Jonathan are lost to Donna, Paul McGloin, it appears, isn't going anywhere. Is still right by her side, steadfast and adoring. She's the one he's wanted since he first laid eyes on her in the Homer class. And while she's wanted others, she now seems prepared to accept him. Student X, class of 82, a close friend of Paul's and Paul's ex-girlfriend, Margaret, nicknamed Bunny, on Paul. He was very reserved. Never someone who would come out and, you know, slap his knee and laugh or make some kind of raucous joke. He was very kind of, he held himself in in that way, but he would sort of be fighting down a smile a little bit. You know, like he he would enjoy things going on around him, but he wouldn't, he wouldn't be the one to kind of, you know, bring that out. But I found him very courtly. He always felt like you were in good hands with him in the way that you would feel with, with an adult sort of, you know, when you're a little younger and there's someone, you know, who's kind of taking care of business, not taking care of you, but sort of taking, making sure that everything around you is okay. Paul's background is more elevated than Donna's, but not by much, is regular middle class. Todd O'Neill, the basis for the secret histories, Henry Winter, on Paul's parents. Paul's parents, I think, were both of them academics, and I believe his father taught I can't remember if it was math or science at Rensselaer Polytechnic. And I remember his, him, his telling me that his parents had made a significant sacrifice to send him to Bennington. Paul's father was actually a professor of math and computer science at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. I know this not from Paul, who declined to be interviewed for this podcast, but from an obit I found online. Now, if Donna and Paul fall in love, I'd contend that they fall too in fantasy. Todd O'Neill on Paul's fantasy. Paul? Yeah. Oh, to be involved with And listeners, you'll have to pardon the background noise. 
Most of my interviews with Todd were conducted in the hush of his studio, but this one was conducted in the hurly-burly of a restaurant. You know, Paul pretended like he was some 19th century Oxonian when he was right. actually at Bennington in the 20th century. His way of speaking, which was very stilted and artificial, I mean, he always used Victorianisms when he spoke and when he wrote. And mm -hmm. I thought, well, why would anybody want to... According to Todd's description, Paul likes to imagine himself at Oxford in the days of yore. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? So his and Donna's fantasies, realer than their realities, are compatible, as are their invented selves, more authentic than their authentic selves. And the figure at the center of their fantasies and inventions is the greatest fantasist and inventor of all, Claude Fredericks. Todd O'Neill is now going to give us Claude's backstory, the whole backstory, not just the gossipy and glamorous Julian Morrow-like details, that Bennington people sought a voce to each other in the dining hall or on Commons Lawn. Dropped out of Harvard under mysterious circumstances, publisher of Gertrude Stein and the Sitwells, intimate of Jimmy Merrill, friend of Alice B. Toklas and Marlon Brando. Claude Fredericks, he was from Springfield, Missouri. The mother was a clever businesswoman and very energetic and strong-willed. She divorced the father, who I think a bit of a playboy, very early on. She started off by opening a gas station tire store and made a success of that. Later, she had a dress store and she would go to Paris for the shows in Milan and buy the clothing. And she would take Claude along as her little lover and they would take a beautiful cruise ship to go there and they'd stay in nice hotels. And she would go to the casinos in you know, Monte Carlo and Claude would, sometimes he would have to sit outside in his little tuxedo waiting for her to come back out again. Later, she had this restaurant in Houston, which I think was quite successful, called the Green Parrot. During the late 50s, he would go there at certain months of the year and run the restaurant for her while she went on vacation. And that was what supported him for many years. But he just, you know, his relationship with his mother was so suffocating that he had to get out from under it. And that's what led him to apply for the job at Bennington, I think, as he realized that he needed to do something other than, you know, continue to take her money. It's a Depression-era story. Claude was born in 1923. Specifically, a James M. Cain Depression-era story. More specifically still, James M. Cain's Depression-era set novel, Mildred Pierce. Grass widow mother, hard knocks, a grueling climb to the top of the restaurant biz. You can find reference to the Green Parrot Inn of Houston, Texas, and to its proprietress, Mrs. Vira Fredericks, in old newspapers. Apparently, the Green Parrot was a local institution famous for its fried chicken and congealed pear salad. The story is also as American as it gets, tacky and provincial and small time, no matter that money comes in eventually, and tuxedos and European sojourns. We are a country of, as the writer Pauline Kael once observed, the Yahoo children of yokels. Claude is a Yahoo too, except by the time he's teaching at Bennington, he isn't, has willed himself out of his Yahoo-ness, out of his Americanness is cultured and cosmopolitan and pagan to the point where he no longer has a nationality. And Donna must be looking to him not just as a mentor, but as a model. If he shucked his origins, so can she. They even have in common a parent who ran a gas station, something Richard Papin, the protagonist and narrator of The Secret History, also has. I'm going to play a passage from the audiobook of The Secret History, read by Donna. 
I've said it before, listeners, and I'll say it again. My belief is that Richard serves as a kind of alter ego for her. The spin she puts on her lines, how she delivers them, therefore, is revelatory. She's talking here about Julian. His students, if they were any mark of his tutelage, were imposing enough. I envied them and found them attractive. Moreover, this strange quality, far from being natural, gave every indication of having been intensely cultivated. It was the same, I would come to find, with Julian, though he gave quite the opposite impression of freshness and candor. It was not spontaneity but superior art which made it seem unstudied. Studied or not, I wanted to be like them. It was heady to think that these qualities were acquired ones, and that, perhaps, this was the way I might learn them. This was all a long way from Plano and my father's gas station. Claude, though, has failed to will himself into becoming an artist, in a recognized sense. Neither his poetry nor his plays ever find an audience. And his journals, which he began at the age of eight, have as yet to find a publisher. Todd O'Neill. Claude was a lovely and modest man, but he also had a form of delayed gratification in the sense that he hadn't really published anything. And that was a good thing, and it was a bad thing. The good thing was that he was removed from the necessity to be ambitious about writing. But at the same time, he felt that he was an important writer and is an important writer. But he was mostly wanted to publish the journals because he saw that as his real magnum opus, the next step beyond Proust. According to Todd, Bob Giraud at Ferrar Strauss in the early 60s offered to publish the journals. But Claude got cold feet. It's often almost scandalously personal because he talks about everything. Claude's tootsies would, in due course, thaw. But by the time he went back to Giraud, Giraud was no longer keen. Giraud said to Claude, quote, The moment's passed. Now who knows who Carl Van Vechten is? Carl Van Vechten, by the way, was a critic and photographer associated with the Harlem Renaissance. Yes, I googled. That had to have been a blow. Not just because Giraud was withdrawing his offer, but because of what that withdrawal signified. That Giraud wasn't, and hadn't ever been, interested in the journals for their literary quality. Only for their sexual gossip about literary figures. So Claude regards the journals as his consequential contribution to American letters. I'd argue, however, that it's Claude's fantasy, the one he created at Bennington, that is his true consequential contribution. It's as if he's a novelist, only he's created a fictional universe out of people rather than words. Here's Aviva Bauer, class of 87, a student of Claude's. And it's a kind of crazy thing. Here is this, you know, this gay man who wrote poetry, but he didn't really have, I don't think Claude would recognize like Stephen Sandy. So he doesn't have an over of poetry that's been published. He's sort of secretive. And he feels things very deeply. He created and occupied this very romantic world. And I think he wanted to see if students could live in that world with him. See if male students can live in that world with him. Todd O'Neill. Claude adored certain women, but Claude was homosexual. And Claude never used the word gay, for example. He only described himself as homosexual. And... His sense of homosexuality was he was truly only attracted to men. Maura Spiegel, a teacher at Bennington, who, as you may recall, started out a student at Bennington, 
was assigned Claude as an advisor her freshman year. She remembers her first meeting with him. I think it was as if he didn't really know how to talk to me. (laughs) But somehow we managed to have some kind of conversation. And then they had to write a little comment about you at the end. And so he, what he wrote about me was that I seemed like a very intelligent girl. And um, I remember when I read that, somehow I intuited, and I don't think I was wrong at getting to know him later years, you know, that that was sort of an insult. (laughs) So Claude prefers male students to female and comely students to plain. He also prefers rich students to poor. Like Morris Spiegel, Todd O'Neill, the son of a prominent neurosurgeon, will pay a visit to Claude's office early on in his Bennington career. I had gone there to find out if he would accept me uh, as a Greek student, which I was told was not easy necessarily to acquire. His first question was, have you ever had a job? I said, no. And he said, good. And then he said, have you ever been to a football game? And I said, no. And he said, good. And then he welcomed me to join his class. Which means that Donna is likely denied entry to Claude's world on two grounds, gender and class. And yet her relationship with Paul McGloin allows her to wriggle past these barriers, only to find that there's another barrier. Here's Matt Jacobson, the basis for the Secret History's Bunny Corcoran. All of us had girlfriends. And the girls realized, well, that's his world, not mine. And I'm not going to be a part of that. But Donna was rather like Miss Budinsky. I mean, she was not playing the role of well-loved girlfriend. She wanted in. She made it quite clear. She wanted in. Todd O'Neill. Matt didn't like Donna. I had no reason to dislike her. But I also found her evasive and a bit impenetrable. Donna must sense Matt's enmity, Todd's indifference, even if both boys are polite on the surface. And it has to pain her. She doesn't strike me as a brash or brazen person, but rather as a sensitive one. She wouldn't go where she isn't wanted. And yet she does. That's how strong the pull of Claude's fantasy, of this sort of living novel that Claude's created, is on her. She cannot resist it. And Matt and Todd have no choice but to tolerate her, because she's Paul's girlfriend, though that isn't quite how Todd sees her. Paul and Donna weren't uh, boyfriend and girlfriend. They were boyfriend and boy. She was mostly a follower. There's a little in awe of the group. And so, you know, uh, she'd come, Paul and Matt and I would do most of the talking and Donna would sit there. She didn't say a lot most of the time. She was also trying to look like us. It felt like we had a freshman plebe following us about. I thought maybe, you know, when I was at the Abbey, we had to do something called uh, initiation, where each senior had to accept responsibility for a freshman, and that's kind of what I felt like that she and Paul were up to. The Abbey, just FYI, is the name of Todd's high school. So Todd seems to find Donna's mimicry somewhere between annoying and flattering. Matt, though, if I'm not mistaken, seems to find it somewhere between annoying and unnerving. She had her penchant for mannish cut blazers, which just made her look more like us. She was like many me hanging out with us, and that was never really discussed at the time. She just it didn't matter how she dressed. She, you know, we had our our ways established. Todd actually confronts Paul about Donna. She and Paul were like Oxonian homosexuals. I once asked him, "What kind of relationship do you have?" And he said, "Well, that's very funny because she wants me to call her my lad." 
So Paul tells Todd that Donna wants him to call her, quote, my lad, which squares with the diary account of Student X. As you'll remember, Paul tells Student X in the fall of 82 that he's, quote, in love with a delightful creature, a girl who looks like a little boy, whose sexuality seems to be that she wants to be treated like a homosexual man. Interesting, because Donna, in those NRT letters to Jonathan, says that the, quote, my lad thing is Paul's idea. Not that it matters whose idea it is. Boyfriend and girlfriend, or boyfriend and boy, Paul and Donna are an established couple. Okay, I want to talk a little bit more about the source of friction between Donna and the group, because it never goes away. Will, in fact, come to a head. What exactly is it? Listeners, I'm going to play for you a snippet from a telephone conversation I had with Matt Jacobson. He's describing his initial encounter with Donna. Yeah. You read the Fitzgerald's Diamond as Big as the Ritz? It's a great story, but this reminds me of... Uh, she was kind of like the narrator in that story, in the sense that she was conscious of the fact that she was from the South. When people asked where she was from, and uh, was it Mississippi, I think? I don't know. She would name... You know, oh, I'm I'm from East Bumfuck, and it's just outside. Uh, what's your face? And everyone would nod their head, like, oh yeah, yeah, you know, sure, it's hot down there. <laughs> yeah, and she knew that's the reaction she would get. It's hard to imagine a blander exchange than the one Matt just recounted, a "Where are you from?" conversation, and yet it abruptly becomes obscurely and complexly hostile, or at least obscurely and complexly charged. Why? How? Matt and Donna are, I think, simply misunderstanding each other. He's trying to get to know her, and she, from his point of view, is blocking that attempt. He finds her answer, which I believe she intends as comic, acting like Benningtonites would not only be familiar with her little town, but with the little town surrounding it, both cagey and mannered. Todd O'Neill. You always felt like Donna was unwilling to share anything real about herself with you. I think that is one of the things that made Matt suspicious of her, was that evasiveness that she had. I'd offer a counterinterpretation. Donna is not blocking Matt so much as shielding herself. Her answer defensive rather than cagey. Faux-mannered rather than genuinely. We know, or think we know, that she, like her protagonist, Richard Papin, is self-conscious about her background. Though, unlike Richard, she doesn't invent a past for herself the past she wished she'd had. I've read several interviews with Donna in which she describes herself as coming from, quote, a long line of librarians and school teachers. On her mother's side, absolutely accurate. Well, perhaps she does invent, or at least tweak, one aspect of her past. We'll get to that possible tweak in a later episode. But back to the self-consciousness she and Richard share. Henry Winter, the character based on Todd O'Neill, picks up on it. Donna reads. Henry looked up from his books at me. You're not very happy where you come from, are you? He said. I was startled at this Holmes-like deduction. He smiled at my evident discomfiture. Don't worry. You hide it very cleverly, he said, going back to his book. Then he looked up again. The others really don't understand that sort of thing, you know. And Donna's self-consciousness would be heightened around someone like Matt. Matt has a keen eye for social distinctions, an eye inherited from his father, the modernist architect, Hugh Newell Jacobson. Nancy Morowitz, class of 86, on Hugh. Hugh Newell Jacobson, who was a, you know, pretty, well, I'm speaking to you from outside of Washington, D.C. He was a 
very well-known figure amongst the sort of Georgetown kind of elegant social Georgetown set as an architect of choice, doing work for Jackie Kennedy, but also Bunny Mellon and just very much a part of that exclusive, low-key Georgetown society. Bunny Mellon is the wife of Paul Mellon, an heir to the Mellon banking fortune and one of the richest men in America. She's also an icon of high caste style, having designed the world-famous White House Rose Garden for JFK and Jackie in 1962. Bunny Mellon was a client of Hugh Newell Jacobson, and she was a venerated member of kind of old American society. Very elegant, very restrained, not particularly interested in publicity, had apparently spectacular taste. And I think she was a mentor of Jackie Kennedy's along with other women. Jackie took Bunny's cue on Hugh Newell Jacobson. In 1979, during Matt's freshman year at Bennington, Jackie hired Hugh to design her house on Martha's Vineyard. When he designed the summer home for Jackie Onassis, the papers called him a Jackie Tect. And that was very amusing. So Hugh Newell Jacobson is arguably the preeminent society architect of his day. Is Donna afraid that Hugh's son will expose her as an Eraviste and a fraud? In The Secret History, that's certainly what Richard is afraid Bunny a nickname that's starting to seem like a joke with multiple punchlines, is going to do to him. Donna reads, Ruthless as a gun dog, Bunny picked up with rapid and unflagging instinct the traces of everything in the world I was most insecure about, all the things I was in most agony to hide. There were certain repetitive, sadistic games he would play with me. He liked to entice me into lies. Gorgeous necktie. He'd say, that's an Hermes, isn't it? And then, when I assented, reach quickly across the lunch table and expose my poor Ty's humble lineage. Or, in the middle of a conversation, he would suddenly bring himself up short and say, Richard, old man, why don't you keep any pictures of your folks around? What? He'd ask with mock innocence. No cameras in California? Where'd your parents go to school anyway? Are they Ivy League material? Or did they go to some kind of a state U? It was the most gratuitous sort of cruelty. My lies about my family were adequate, I suppose, but they could not stand up under these glaring attacks. Matt possesses that same rapid and unflagging instinct. Todd. Matt, as you know from having met him, he has, uh, he has, he's very sharp-witted. He has a good eye and he has a good critical eye. He often wasted his wit on silly trifles, but nonetheless, he had that talent. So he could all of a sudden like pick out some little thing, <laughs> you know. Matt's antipathy to Donna is the strongest, and yet she seems to court him in particular. She was kind of more curious than I think a, a guy's girlfriend should be. She wasn't, I don't want to say flirty, but... It was just kind of creepy. She once sent me, well, she put a note in my box. It was all typed, so I wouldn't see the feminine handwriting. And it was uh, saying things like, uh, oh, we are kindred spirits. And I thought, I, who used the term kindred spirits in that 1980 Vermont? No one did. But I still didn't piece it together for years later. She was the one who put this note in my box, then sat with us at lunch as I said, huh, someone is calling me their kindred spirit, damnedest thing. And um, 
And so I think she rather enjoyed watching me twitch. Another misunderstanding. My guess is Donna isn't trying to make Matt twitch. No, she's trying to do to him what she did to student X back in episode six, when she insisted that student X take the bed, she the floor, the night they shared Paul's room. In other words, Donna's trying to ingratiate herself. She wants to charm Matt, or rather disarm Matt, though her efforts have the opposite effect. Fissures in the group start to appear. Todd. Matt and I had a closeness because we did a lot of stuff together, see? Paul I was less good friends with, I think, uh, though we were friends. Matt is all ab reaction. I mean, everything is up front, out in the open. He's compulsive, uh, sloppy. He can laugh equally well at himself as he can other people. And Paul was always very reserved. He was almost like an undertaker. He didn't talk much about himself. He didn't talk much about his world, his past. It's very hard to know exactly what Paul did think because he did share with Donna this strange sphinx-like inscrutability. Maybe that's also why Matt was irritated by Donna's presence because he might have felt that that was only, you know, making Paul worse. I don't know. And the Cossacks group is not, in any case, some monolithic unit. Matt, Paul, and Todd are committed to the Cossacks and to Claude to varying degrees. Matt is, in fact, an art major, and Paul is applying to law school. It's Todd who's most dedicated to the classics, and who's in the deepest with Claude. There was a series of overlapping circles. So there were the larger circle of everyone who studied with Claude and admired him. Then there were the smaller circles of those who were studying Greek with Claude, but then there was a circle within that circle as well. And the most inner circle were the circle of students with whom Claude really became friends. And that was, at that time, it was basically just me. Claude did have a hidden teaching in the sense that Plato did. But what that meant was that he could only discuss the deeper mysteries or truths of what he knew with people who were prepared to hear it and trained to hear it. Paul and Matt studied with Claude, but they weren't really, how shall I say it, they weren't as serious about pursuing learning. None of these fissures, though, are visible to those outside the group. To those outside the group, the group has always seemed occluded and insular. Student X on the group, pre-Donna. You know, it was partially their look, but also that they clearly were, you know, in this class and kind of secretive about that. There was just this sense, you know, like, I mean, they wouldn't talk, to us so much about what they were doing in class and they wouldn't really let you in on what was going on there, I guess. They would make little asides to each other in Greek. There were other teachers who people liked, but there was no one who kind of had that, you know, cult following feeling of like, oh, Claude, you know, Claude Frederick's like hands off, you know, you're not allowed to, no one's allowed to be in his class or so. It just felt, you know, yeah, felt like a, like a little club. To those outside the group, the group still seems occluded and insular. But now it's bigger. Nancy Morowitz on the group with Donna. I certainly remember having Paul McGloin and that group of guys pointed out to me when I started school. But maybe it was that spring semester when she started to become closer to them. And they were a very noticeable fixture around campus. I mean, part of it was just the 
disparity in their heights because she was so tiny and the three of them were so much taller. But I can absolutely distinctly remember the three of them and then the four of them. The three guys, but then the four, the, the guys with Donna. And it's at this moment that Donna's persona coheres. What she's been becoming, she now is. Suddenly, she's Donna Tart, as we think of Donna Tart. Like Brett, Donna is a fully realized self-creation. And like Brett's self, Donna's self is designed to be looked at, yet to reveal nothing, to simultaneously catch and deflect all eyes. It's a self in quotation marks, strong, bold, consistent, flamboyant, to be placed over a self not in quotation marks, a real self, shrinking, pale, uncertain, furtive. Nancy Morowitz again. I remember starting to notice her late in the freshman year. She had this beautiful short Eaton crop haircut, and she would wear sort of miniature female versions of a, a men's suit and vest and a, a big overcoat, a scarf, beautiful shoes, like little brogues. She was beautifully turned out. That is the phrase that I think of when I think of her. She had a sort of um, unusual correctness about her. There was an aloof quality, but mostly it was a sense of kind of correct, pristine, put-together look and, and affect. Lisa Fader. I think the very beginning, beginning, she hadn't cultivated her style yet, so I didn't, like, notice her. It wasn't until she did look stylish that I noticed. I mean, she started dressing like them, those guys. And she was adorable and completely androgynous. So, paradoxically, it's only by joining a group that Donna is able to define herself as an individual only by becoming part of a crowd that she stands out from it. It's not just Donna's look that's bringing her attention. It's also her talent. That spring, she doesn't take Nick Del Blanco's fiction workshop the premier workshop, but she does take a workshop. Brett and I discuss. I was only in one workshop with her, one workshop. Is this the McGinnis workshop? No, this is Arturo Vivante, who was in the spring of 83. I remember one story called Assassins. That was the moment when it became apparent that, oh, she's better than all of us. It was so much better than anything that was there. And that was kind of unfair, I mean, Freshman workshop, no one really could say anything. No one said anything about her story except, what could you say? This is the first time you're hearing Arturo Vivante's name, listeners. So let me give you a quick rundown. Arturo is, like most of the teachers at Bennington, a teacher artist. Born in Rome in 1923, he was a medical doctor before he was a published writer. Brett on Arturo. A bit out of it, lovely... I kind of made fun of him in the Rules of Attraction. It was a long set piece in the book where, and it was true, Arturo would have kids over to his house. He would come on to the girls and always saying stuff to them and complimenting their looks. And now 
People laughed. He was elderly. I think you could pretty much easily fight him off. Jill Eisenstadt, also in her Toro's workshop. He never touched anybody that I know. He would just say, like, flowery things that were slightly inappropriate, or probably more than slightly inappropriate, but, you know, it wasn't, you know, he would quote poetry at you or that kind of thing, but it was just, you know, I mostly felt sorry for him. Though Arturo is still published regularly in the New Yorker in the early 80s, his career is on the decline. Here's David Lipsky, who will study with Arturo the following spring. Arturo was great, and if you read his prose, he was great. He also would talk about himself as like, you don't want this entirely to happen to you, which was he was moving into like the seventh season of 30 Rock. Like, I've lost some of my viewership, and I still, you know, I'm still a really great reader and writer, and I'm still very charming. But there was that basic irony of someone facing a workshop class who is also presenting themselves as an anti-example to some degree. Perhaps, though, it's Arturo's bygone era quality, his out-of-style style that appeals to Donna. She seems to be deliberately steering clear of Nick Del Blanco, in whose workshop minimalism, the in-style style, is favored. Or maybe it's Nick's manner, forceful, commanding, that she wishes to avoid. Nick. I was frankly more stringent than Arturo. My teaching practice was predicated in a sense on paying students the compliment of insult, meaning you can do better, don't waste my time, this is not up to uh, the standard you wish to set for yourself. Arturo was an all-embracing enthusiast. He would close his eyes and smile and say, isn't it wonderful? He's taught by encouragement. I like to think I did so too, but I was much more severe. Here's Donna talking to Charlie Rose in 1992. Bennington was a very wonderful school to go to because um, the, I think a lot of writing programs, there, there's a great deal of cutthroat behavior. There's a lot of competitiveness. But at Bennington, um, we were all really quite supportive of each other. I mean, you hear horror stories about, you know, people sabotaging other people's work. But, you know, it didn't happen at Bennington. Of course that happens at Bennington, as we know from David Lipsky, who in the previous episode compared the experience of attending Nick Del Blanco's workshop to appearing on the reality show Survivor. But that doesn't happen to Donna at Bennington because she makes sure it doesn't by choosing Arturo as a teacher. His is, as far as I can determine, the sole workshop that she'll take at Bennington apart from Stephen Sandy's poetry workshop. Brett remembers Donna's final workshop story, Elvis in Hell, a title and a plot synopsis in one. How she portrayed Satan and how she portrayed Elvis kind of as this deluded fool. It was one of those moments where not only could she write really well, but she was also, it's not what you really think about Donna. It was really funny. But, and I, I don't know if Donna ever wants it published. It is published though published informally, and it's published by Jonathan Latham's girlfriend, Maddie Horseman, of all people. Jonathan and I discuss. Maddie Horseman. She was also like a yeah. zine publisher. And she, oh, for whatever reason, yeah. read Donna's story and published it in a tiny little bright red chapbook with, with Maddie's own drawings illustrating it on the cover. Actually, the drawing on the cover is the work of Maddie's friend, artist Steve Carter, 
It was a very kind of New York downtown art kid kind of thing to do. In that generation, you know, you didn't have the internet. What you did was you did, you know, postal art. You did zines or, you know, or chapbooks. And Maddie did a series called Maddie's Mail Club. And there were these little tiny booklets. And that's, and that's the form in which I retained a copy of uh, Donna's Elvis and Hell story. Maddie, on how it happens. I just wanted to publish stuff. And I asked Donna Tart. I said, give me a short story. And she gave me Elvis in Hell. And I had Steve Carter illustrate it. And I'm still proud of it. That I could just give her that little boost of saying, you know what? You're worth a little red zine. Maybe that helped, I hope. Because she was up against Lethem and Brett. Yet another canny observation from Maddie Horseman. Donna is up against Lethem and Brett. As Lethem is up against Donna and Brett. And Brett is up against Lethem and Donna. Daunting configurations all. Whether these three are in workshop together or not doesn't matter. They've sniffed each other out and will continue sniffing. The spring term of 1983 is coming to an end, which means the school year is doing likewise. It's time for Todd O'Neill, Matt Jacobson, and Paul McGloin to don cap and gown. The shocker, Todd, the most scholarly of the bunch, can't. Matt, on why this is so. Todd was supposed to be 83, and Todd had this disease that he wrote the papers but never turned them in. Todd on his, quote, disease. So my thesis at Bennington was I was going to do a translation of the symposium and then a commentary on the symposium. At that time, I had become very interested in Neoplatonism, which led me to read the great river of Neoplatonic thought that exists throughout Christianity. So Dionysius, the pseudo-Ariapagite, was a medieval portal for the spiritual or mystical side of Platonic philosophy. I got to working on that, and then somehow I got bogged down in it, and I think I had bitten off far more than I could chew, frankly. I just couldn't finish my thesis. I just couldn't do it. It's possible, I guess, to become too good a student. You're so reverent toward your subject, you don't dare approach it. Whether or not Todd is technically graduating, he is leaving campus, same as Matt and Paul. For these three, the college experience is over. The Classics group is splitting up, its members heading off in different directions. Todd to Rome for a fellowship in medieval studies at Sapienza University, Matt to Los Angeles with his girlfriend, and Paul to Cambridge to begin law school at Harvard, the plan since he was with Donna's predecessor, Bunny. But the truth of the matter is, the Classics group had split up before the college experience was over. Split up because of Donna, according to Matt. Todd and I really... I don't know how we did it, but we made it clear as it's not going to work out that uh, uh, he had to make his choice. So much for tolerance. Paul, not surprisingly, chooses his girlfriend. The Greek group's dissolution is a quiet dissolution. No punches are thrown or insults hurled, but it is a dissolution. Matt will have one final run-in with Donna. I remember the last time I saw her. Paul was behind her at graduation. And there's a big crowd, and I happen to be walking south, and she was walking north, and our eyes locked, and she took a left and disappeared with him someplace else. He never really looked at me. 
I guess she told him, look, you got to take lock, stock, and barrel here. You can't have one without the other. So you're not talking to him anymore. I always thought about Donna as the Yoko Ono of the Greek class. If she couldn't be a part of it, then she would break it up. And that's that. At least until 1992 and the publication of The Secret History. Next time on Once Upon a Time at Bennington College. Donna, my sense of her then, and it may be that I was meeting her writer self, and there's there's nobody whose writer self isn't this person, maybe. Because the person that I met, it was like their soul was wearing like a sort of shabby thrift store used raincoat with the lapel up and their and their head which was still wet from a shower was was sort of held down so you couldn't get a clear look at their face so i met with her and she was my really strongest sense of her she seemed very small and humid with anxiety this has been a presentation and production of c13 originals a cadence 13 studio once Upon a Time at Bennington College is executive produced by me and Chris Corcoran, created and written by me, directed by Zach Levitt, edited by Perry Kroll, script edited by Bruce Handy, production support and additional editing by Ian Mont, mixed and mastered by Bill Schultz, production coordination by Terrence Malangone, studio coordination by Sean Cherry, artwork and design by Kurt Courtney, marketing by Brian Swarth, Josephina Francis, Moira Curran, and Melissa Wester. The original music is by Joel Goodman. Cadence 13 is an Odyssey company. They said it couldn't be done. They say it bordered on impossible. When someone says I can't do something, I usually agree with them. (laughs) And now, against all odds, this completely mediocre comedy podcast has done the unthinkable. They got listeners we got listeners no way amazing now available on the odyssey app or wherever you listen to podcasts i'm so happy we're at odyssey now oh my god they're amazing the commercial break podcast you heard it here last